So we are continuing this morning in a series in Hosea. So you'll find that text printed for you in your bulletin. It, it's kind of a long passage, but we're going we're to plow through this text this morning. Hosea chapter 4. But I want to start, before we read this text, I want to read a couple of quotes to you. Uh, here's the first one. Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement? What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. What optimistic. That's quote number one. Here's quote number two. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. So, first quote. That's H.G. Wells. Some of you may be familiar with this author. And it's in 1937. Second quote. That would be H.G. Wells in 1946 after World War II. And you can see in those quotes that what World War, done had, World War II had done for H.G. Wells is it had kind of shattered his belief in the myth of human progress. That things were just going to continue to get better and better until we reached some kind of nirvana. And what that, been, what that had been replaced with, though was almost a despair on his part. That this world is so broken and people are so broken that there's nothing that can be done about it. And I, I think we can probably sympathize with him. If, if we were honest with ourselves, we would all agree that while this world is an amazing place and a beautiful place and there are great things to do and great things to enjoy, it's also a very broken place. And so my question for us to think about this morning is how does Christianity explain that? How does Christianity answer the question, what's wrong with the world? Uh, or, or if you think about it this way, if we could get H.G. Wells and God to sit down in the same room together and we let H.G. Wells ask God, what, why is it like this? Why is the world so broken? What would, what would God's response to him and to us be? I suggest it might be something along the lines of what we're going to read this morning in Hosea 4. Something along the lines of what God says to the people of Israel through the prophet Hosea. Or he might say something along the lines of what we might read in Romans 1 through 3, where Paul is speaking to new believers in Rome. The question is, what's wrong with the world? The answer is actually very simple, and we're going to look at it, but the answer is simple. The answer is, is sin. Now, depending on your background and you know what brand of Christianity you grew up with, uh, or was around you, you might think, oh, we, oh, great. Like the church, just that's all the church talks about. The church talks about sin too much. But listen to what, this is what Dr. Simeon Zoll, and, and this is a guy that teaches at the University of Nottingham in a public research university, which is in the United Kingdom. And he says he enjoys teaching theology of these students, which are a mix of, of Christians and non-Christians. But he says this, there's one topic where I never feel like they are tracking with me. There's one theological bone they just can't seem to swallow, and that's the doctrine of sin. When I try to explain that Christians have traditionally believed that human beings are deeply flawed from birth, 
And furthermore, that God is profoundly unhappy about these flaws, I watch my students' eyes grow skeptical. I watch their postures shift the way students always do when they disagree with what you are telling them. Not all of these students disagree, but many do. do. It's an annual skeptical moment in my lectures. When modern people hear the word sin, when they hear someone describe the idea that human beings are fundamentally flawed in a very deep way, seeking our own best interest over that of others, and for reasons that lie at the core rather than just the periphery of our nature, and when they hear that human beings might on this basis be liable fundamentally to judgment, when they hear all this, I think what they actually hear me say is something like this. It is right to judge people for their flaws rather than having compassion on them. Or else perhaps I think I am better than other people and have the right to judge them. In a way, you could say that my students don't like the idea of sin because it sounds immoral to them. My students get uncomfortable because the doctrine of sin is heard as a violation of their moral values. It encourages judgmentalism, repression, not accepting people as they are, and creepy religious power dynamics. And he says, like, he says these inferences are the wrong inferences and that it's vital to understand sin if you're actually going to understand what Christianity is about at all. He says, in the edifice of Christian belief, the doctrine of sin is a major load-bearing structure. It is not theologically optional. To lose it or to downplay it or to reframe it in terms that are less offensive to our sense of self-worth is in the long run to render Christianity unintelligible to people. It will become a floating shell unmoored from its historical foundation, from its own inner logic, and from the realities of human lives. So, sin. Maybe you think the church talks about it too much. Maybe you think the church doesn't talk about it enough. But to understand Christianity, if, if, if you want to understand the Christian vantage point of what's wrong with the world, you have to understand sin. And so hopefully in reading Hosea this morning, that will help us to do that. We're going to look at the face of sin, the heart of sin, and then God's verdict on sin, and then draw some, some thoughts from that. But this is, this is God's word, uh, Hosea chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. 
They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. You pray for us. Father, that's... uh, that's kind of hardcore, uh, and this is heavy stuff that we think about and look at this morning, but it's vital for us to understanding who you are and who we are. It's vital for us um, actually understanding the gospel and seeing our need for Jesus and loving Jesus. Um, so help us to see the, the truth about ourselves so that we can, can see and fall in love with the truth of who Jesus is. We pray it in his name. Amen. So the first thing I want us to do, look at from this text, is I want us to look at the face of sin. What does sin look like on the outside? What does it look like in the, in the real world? What are the behaviors and attitudes that characterize sin? Verse 2 lists swearing, which could be taking false oaths. It could be calling down a curse on somebody and using God's name to do that. It also lists lying, murder, stealing, adultery. Uh, verse 11 lists whoredom and drunkenness. Uh, if we were to go and, and look at a similar passage in Romans 1, it would list things like sexual immorality and gossip and slander and envy and malice. And I, I think if you tried to, to sum all of these, you know, these descriptions up, uh, you might say that sin is failing to love your neighbor. Or at least one aspect of sin is failing to love your neighbor. Uh, that sin is, is self-centeredness. Sin is when police officers go to a home where someone is supposedly molesting a child and seven of them are shot at that home. Sin is a mom who doesn't read 
to her child at night because she's too intoxicated. Sin is sexual abuse. Sin is stolen property. Sin is lying on a job application. Sin is cheating on a test. Sin is excluding people because they're the wrong color, because they're the wrong uh, socioeconomic demographic, because they aren't cool enough. Sin is the harsh words of a parent and the rebellious heart of a child. Sin is a billionaire giving away millions of dollars to build libraries but not paying his workers enough to buy decent shoes. Sin is the Jim Crow South. Sin is a con artist running a scam on the elderly. Sin is ignoring the lonely and the poor and the prisoner. You see the face of sin in the before and after picture of a meth addict. You see the face of sin in the Netflix series Ozark. You see the face of sin at our kitchen tables and in the car on the way to church on Sunday morning. You see the face of sin in all of these things. That's what it looks like on the outside. Uh, Simon Zoll, who I quoted earlier, say in some ways we see all this, but we try to, we, we've, we've kind of hidden it in plain sight as his words. Uh, and one of the ways he says we do this is with some of our psychological terms and description of sin. He says one of these terms is the fundamental attribution era. And he says the fundamental attribution era refers to the fact that human beings very strongly tend to attribute good things that happen to us to our own efforts and bad things that happen to us to external factors and vice versa when it comes to other people. So when I don't get a promotion at my job, I blame the system. No one could have done better in my circumstances, but my boss gave me all the bad jobs. When Steve over there doesn't get the promotion, however, I blame Steve, lazy, incompetent, problematic Steve. The fundamental attribution error thus allows us to maintain the view that we ourselves are thoughtful people who are basically wise and good actors, even if there is evidence to the contrary. And it encourages us to judge other people as basically foolish and difficult actors, even if there is evidence to the contrary. And he says this, once upon a time, we just called this sin. Like this is just sin. This is what this is. These are the faces of sin. It's, it's all around us. It's inside of us. Uh, and, and it's not just those people. It's me. But the reality is I'm much more bothered by your sin than I am by my sin. And that too is sin. So that's the face of sin. Well, what about the heart of sin? It's the heart of sin. Verse 1 here. Um, we read that the reason the Lord has a, a controversy with Israel, He says there's no faithfulness, there's no steadfast love, and there's no knowledge of God in the land. And all three of those are relational terms. They're, they're marriage terms. Um, imagine a wife saying to her husband, he's not faithful, he doesn't love me, and he doesn't understand me. Uh, Israel has... has God is Israel's husband, so to speak, and Israel has turned away from her husband and turned to run after other gods who are not gods. Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood. And so instead of remaining faithful to the God of the Bible, they've given their hearts to other gods. Now, we don't really do that, do we? Or do we? Listen, this is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. Verse 22, actually 21. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And so the dynamic that goes on in our hearts, we may not worship idols of wood or stone, but we find things in the creation that we deify and give our hearts to instead of giving our hearts to God. And so here's what's going on on the outside. There's, There's murder, there's lying, there's adultery, there's theft. That's the external face of sin. But what's going on on the inside is that we give our hearts and our love and our worship to other gods. Uh, And as we give our hearts to these other gods, we're shaped by them. We're always shaped by the things that we worship. Uh, James Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, says actually to be human, to be a human being is to be on a quest. Uh, He says that, that we form this picture often subconsciously of what the good life is like. And we form that based on kind of our, you know, our family relationships and what we're taught in our families and what we receive from culture and everything that's just kind of poured in onto us and we're inundated with. And we don't even necessarily give it that much thought. But we form this picture of what the good life is. And we consciously and subconsciously pursue things that we think will lead us to the good life. He says our heart then is, is both like an engine and a homing beacon that points us to the good life. And actually propels us like an engine toward the good life. And it operates us without us within us without us really thinking about it. And he says, for each one of us, this compass of our heart is off. And it's it's directed toward things that are not God, kingdoms other than God's kingdom, rival kingdoms. And we're shaped by these things that we pursue. The Israelites had a vision of the good life. They had a good life of prosperity in the land, and they were in this land where the, the, the remaining people there worshipped the Canaanite gods of Baal, who were gods and goddesses of fertility. And you know their thing was, well, if we worship them, then they're going to bless the crops. The, the crops will produce; they'll be abundant. We'll have the good life. And on top of that, uh, they had sexual rituals in their worship services. And so the Israelites said, "Well, hey, that beats sitting in the pews and singing hymns, right?" So they got caught up in this vision of what the good life was. And that's where their hearts went. We get caught up in in visions of what the the good life is too. We get caught up in the American dream. We we want the the perfect house and the the right size family and the, the right number of kids and the right job and the right dogs and the the requisite number of trips to Disney World or, or, or to the beach and, and, and all these of uh, uh, the right amount of money in our 401k all things that aren't bad in and of themselves but they become what, our, what, we're, what we're pursuing they become what our hearts have latched onto instead of latching on into God they, they, this dream captures our heart instead of our hearts being captured by God in the version of his kingdom where we love him and love others sacrificially even 
and that shapes who we are. This vision we have of the good life shapes who we are, and it shapes how we spend our time, and it shapes how we spend our money, and it shapes what our lives begin to look like. Put it this way. If we think happiness comes through consumption and buying things, we become consumers. If we think happiness comes through money, we become greedy and we treat other people as creditors or debtors. Uh, if we think happiness comes through sex, we treat people as potential sex partners, and that's, that's the only way we view them. Uh, Jonathan Edwards says that if your highest goal is your own, the good of your own family, you'll care less about other families. If the highest goal is the good of your nation, you'll become nationalistic. If the highest goal is the good of your race, you'll become a racist. If my highest goal is my happiness, I mean, I just, I just want to feel good. I just want life to go well. Then loving my neighbor is going to become more and more optional to me if I think that it gets in the way of my happiness. So if my highest goal is my happiness, if that's what I'm pursuing out there in the distance, then there will come a day when I say, well, why not theft? If getting that makes me happy. Or why not adultery? Or why not murder? Or why not cheating? Or why not spending everything that I make on myself instead of giving some to the goods to the good of others and so my my failure to love my neighbor is tied directly to my failure to know and to love God and I'm shaped by all of that I'm shaped by all of that notice here and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it but but Hosea devotes several verses to the fact that he says, and basically, and your religious leaders have led you into this. And your priests have led you into this. Which, which, which tells me I need to be very careful about what I listen to from my religious leaders and whose teaching I put myself under. And I need to be examining that by the word of God and not just going, oh, okay, well, he said that. No, we have to go back to the scriptures. Well... Is the face of sin, and in the heart of sin, which is this false worship, and then there's God's verdict on sin. Uh, verse 6 of chapter 5 says, they will not find the Lord, for he's withdrawn from them. Verse 17 of chapter 4, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Just just leave him alone and let him be there. The, the, the picture... Throughout the book of Hosea is one that judgment is coming upon God's people because of their spiritual adultery. And that really, when you think about it, that's just kind of a, a microcosm of, of the story of Scripture. In, uh, in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve are told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they do, they'll die. And they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they die and bring us all into death with them. If it's what Paul says in the book of Romans where he says the wages of sin is death. And so this story of scripture is that sin leaves us liable to judgment. It leaves us liable to the judgment of God. I read recently Kendrick Marr was commenting on his last album. And there had been an article kind of comparing what, what he says about how he thinks about God with how Chance the Rapper thinks about God and how Kendrick Lamar tends to be much more negative in, in his, his, well, more focusing on the, the, the judgment side, anyway, of who God is. 
And he said, he said, yeah, that's right. He said, I grew up in these churches that talked a lot about the mercy of God and the love of God, but they never mentioned that God was a jealous God or that God demanded my obedience or that God is a God who will discipline his children. And he said that part of what he's doing in his music is he's trying to express that side of God. Now, I don't know that I'd recommend Kendrick Lamar as your systematic theologian, but, um, but that, that is interesting, isn't it? That, that, and he's, he is on to something there, that God is not just a God of, of love and mercy, but he's also a God of justice and a God of, of wrath. He is a God who judges sin. And we need to know that, and we need to, to understand that. But, but let me ask, but before I move on, why, why is it like this? Why does sin leave us liable to God's judgment? Why, why couldn't God just say, well, you know, they're just kids. They're going to they're gonna do dumb stuff. Why couldn't he just say, never mind? Well, it's because he's good and he's just. Put it like this. Do you know a doctor who's okay with cancer? Do you know a... Do you know a judge who's okay with robbery if if god wasn't opposed to the disease of sin if he weren't opposed to wrongdoing he wouldn't actually be good he has to be opposed to sin to be a good god sin is like a a vandal uh, painting graffiti on god's beautiful creation and god is opposed to anything that defaces the beauty of his creation or better yet, he's opposed to anything that defaces the beauty of his beloved. And so he's opposed to sin. E.H. E. Gifford said, human, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, and the traitor. And so all that to say, here's where we stand. Chapter, chapter 5, verse 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. And so the the scriptures paint a picture of people apart from Christ, trapped in sin, worshiping gods that are not gods, running after gods that are not gods, not knowing the Lord, and then that spins out of all the effects that we see in the world around us. Now, Here's my question after all that. Why is it good and helpful for us to know that? Why, like, I know that's like, like, I don't even really like want to preach on that because I know you're like, oh. and I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to be happy too. So, so, so why, is it, why, is it, why is it helpful for us to think about that? Let me offer several just thoughts for you why that's helpful to think about as, as we wrap this up. Number one, this tells me that the real problem in the world is a worship problem. It's not just a behavior issue. And so what we need is not simply behavior modification because the real problem is a worship problem. People need to be made into worshipers of the one true God. Secondly, understanding sin paves the way for me to understand Christianity. It paves the way for me to understand Jesus because Christianity... And Jesus make no sense apart from this idea of sin. Christianity is not saying, hey, y'all, there's some good people in the world and some bad people in the world, and you need to try really hard at the end of the day to be one of the, the good people. And what Christianity is saying is that we're all 
bad people and that we've all run away from home, but that Jesus has come to bring us home. Uh, Jesus said, and this is my paraphrase, I didn't come for healthy people, I came for sick people. And, and what he's saying, because the healthy people don't need a doctor, and what he's saying is not, well, there's all these healthy people and they're fine, they'll be okay, they're going to make it on their own. He said, no, if you don't realize that you're sick, you're not going to see any need for me. And so if you feel like you're healthy, if you're comfortable in your own religiousness and goodness, you're going to see no need for Jesus. And so we've got to understand sin in order to understand our need for Christ. Thirdly, C.S. Lewis said, this is one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, is that he likes his religion the way he likes his whiskey, which is straight. Uh, which reminds me that I need religious leaders who will give it to me straight, who won't say necessarily what makes me feel good, who won't say what I want them to say, but who will actually tell me the truth about me and the truth about Jesus. J.I. Packer said this, uh, He that has learned to feel his sins and to trust Christ as a Savior has learned the two hardest and greatest lessons in Christianity. And so we need people who will preach and who will disciple us and who will speak into our lives, who will help us to feel the weight of our sin and also to trust Jesus in the midst of that. Because he's a good Savior who's come to save us from our sin. Um, Fourthly, we're going to say, I think, um, understanding this idea of judgment helps me to see that the injustice in the world doesn't have the last word. And that's, that's really good for us to see. I was, I was listening to um, Larry Wilmore this week. He has a podcast. He used to be on the, some of you may remember, he used to be on the Daily Show. And he was, he was talking about uh, Bill Cosby. He was sentenced and, and went to, to prison this week for, for all kinds of sexual abuse and assault. And he said, I'm glad that they finally got him. But he got away with it because he's 80-something years old and he's skated his whole life. So he's really not paying for this like he should. And then he says, you just have to realize that sometimes bad people get away with it. They just get away with it. And, and like, how awful does that feel, especially if you're one of the victims of an injustice? What the scripture says is that there is a day of reckoning that will come either in this life or the life to come, but but nobody is just going to get away with anything. That justice is going to be done. Uh, Fifthly, um, understanding sin in the gospel, both sin and the gospel, frees me to own up to the truth about myself. Um, I haven't seen this, and I think I'm going to probably say you probably don't want to watch this, but there, I just was reading about it. There's, there's an HBO show called True Detective, uh, and there's a detective on there, and his name is, is, is Rust. And Rust is kind of the, the go-to interrogator, and he always gets people to confess. And somebody was like, man, how do you, how do you always get people to confess? And this is what he said. Look, everyone knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative. The guilty especially. And everybody's guilty. See, you, we don't like talking about sin, but at the same time, you know that you're guilty. 
And I know that I'm guilty. And my Christian friends and my non-Christian friends, we all know that we're guilty and that we have things we need to confess. But we can't confess it because if we confess it, then our cover's blown and everybody sees us for who we really are. And then is anyone going to love me once they see who I really am? And what the Gospel says is that Jesus has seen who you really are and He has loved you and He has provided you with a covering so that you can own up to who you really are. You can confess your sin and still be loved and still be forgiven and still be welcome. Last thing. Understanding this idea of sin and idolatry and we'll think more about idolatry next time can actually begin to free us from our idols. Let me tell you the story. Uh, This is from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. There was a a woman early in his ministry named Sally who was beautiful. And she learned that that beauty actually enabled her to have power over other people, and she used it that way. She used her beauty to manipulate people and to get what she wanted out of life. But later, he says, that actually kind of flipped and she began to feel powerless if a man wasn't in love with her. And so people started using this against her. She couldn't stand to be alone. And so she would stay in a relationship even with uh, an abusive man because of this. She was, she was looking to men for a, a sense of affirmation and love that really she could only find in God. Well, later in life, she goes to a counselor, and the counselor kind of lays this out to her. And the counselor said, look, you're looking to men for your salvation. You're looking to men to try to get an identity. And what you need to do is you need to get a career. You need to get a career, and you need um, to become self-sufficient, and that will build up your self-esteem, and you'll feel better about who you are. And she halfway agreed with the counselor. She's like, yeah, I, I do need to become a little more self-sufficient but but I don't I'm not buying this part about the self-esteem and this is what she said she said I was being advised to give a to give up a common female idolatry and take on a common male idolatry but I didn't want my self-worth dependent on career success any more than on men I wanted to be free and so Keller writes this how did she do it she came across Colossians 3 Where Paul writes, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. She came to realize that neither men nor career nor anything else should be her life or identity. What mattered was not what men thought of her or career success, but what Christ had done for her and how he loved her. So when she saw a man was interested in her, she would silently say in her heart toward him, you may turn out to be a great guy. And maybe even my husband, but you cannot ever be my life. Only Christ can be my life. She had answered the question that we all must address in order to live our lives the way we should. Who can I turn to who is so beautiful that he will enable me to escape all counterfeit gods? There is only one answer to this question. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us to see the sin that enslaves us? Would you help us to see the counterfeit gods that we turn to are really not gods and really won't free us? And would you help us to turn to Jesus?
and in his love uh, and his forgiveness uh, and his rescue. We pray it in his name. Amen.
be seated. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. How serious is sin? How big a deal is it? The Lord's table shows us that it is so serious that in order for me to be forgiven, Jesus had to actually die in my place. And it shows me the weightiness of sin. But it also shows me how much I am loved that Jesus willingly came and gave himself for me so that I might be forgiven. So the invitation to you this morning is to feel your sin, but to lay it down at the foot of the cross. To rest in the forgiveness that Jesus has purchased for you. And to believe that and to go from here free, having peace with God, with no condemnation, knowing that, that he has begun a good work in you and is going to continue that work. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, we pray for, the, for, for something supernatural to happen. Um, for us to sense sin, not just as words, but to sense the reality of it as a, as a failure to love our neighbor and a failure to love you. But I pray also that we'll sense, uh, get a sense of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. That Christ has taken that sin on himself. And so that there is now no condemnation for us. Father, would you work both of these truths in us so that the gospel becomes electrifying and life-giving to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.